Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. Sand. Camels. Orants. Only my friends get to know my name. And my friends listen to Zach on film, so my name is Zach, if you didn't catch that. And today we're talking Lawrence of Arabia! Extend this for three hours. Good luck. (sighs) Zach, Lawrence of Arabia was your homework last week and you decided to skip class. Well, I was still watching it. He didn't have enough time to watch it in the week. <laughs> oh, yeah, the I, sat down, I sat down in one showing. No way. Yeah, it was great. I watched it for about an hour upstairs, and um, the boy, my oldest, sat down, and he watched it for a while, yeah. too. And he was kind of into it. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And uh, and then he had to go to bed, and because I, I didn't want all the noise, right? Um, went downstairs and finished watching the rest of it. I can see how he got into it. I mean, it's not like... It's, he thought it was cool that the guy rode a motorcycle and then died. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And then he's like, well, that's how come so he dies? He's like, well, because those people got in the way. And he's like, well, why is he there? And I was like, well, now they're telling the story of what led up to him mm-hmm. getting on that motorcycle and crashing. Yeah. Camels. And he thought the camels were cool. And the, yeah, that's cool. And the uh, fact that he was playing with matches and lighting his, you know, tr- putting it out on his skin was mm-hmm. cool. Did he like the super Framavision? Um, you know, we're not getting it in Super Frame of Vision yeah, here. No. Um, we are getting the 2000 Restored Edition. That's the one that we're watching. 222 minutes. That does include about 15 minutes of um, music at the beginning and about a five-minute, ten-minute yeah, intermission it, music break. It was, like, it was like five and five. Was it five and five? Yeah, I know it just fa- fast-forwarded. I, because I mean, I, the music it, is it, super The popular. music started st- starting. I was like, oh, there's nothing, nothing on film. This will be like 30 seconds. No, I think it was about four, and then yeah, there was an intermission. So what is uh, what is this story about? Uh, this is it's about three and a half hours. <laughs> this is a uh, biopic right. about a officer man in the British Army who becomes like the liaison between Britain and the oh Arabs, the Arab yeah, tribes, the Arab tribes, yeah, yeah. In their the in, during the uh, World War One, mm-hmm. as they look to take over certain towns, Damascus being a big one at the end. And why are they doing this? Because they want to get rid of the Turks. Okay, because of the big World War yeah, going yeah, yeah, on, yeah. they're fighting the Turks in the desert. Mm-hmm. The British believe that if they can get T. E. Lawrence to go out and act as a liaison, that he can rally them to support and drive the Turks back. Little do they realize that Lawrence. Uh, goes out and becomes mad with power. He goes full and native. and um 
and turns into a gorilla gorilla warrior mm-hmm. and yeah. just lays waste to everyone that his uh his army he goes insane and well, yeah and but but simultaneously kind of. becomes a champion for the rights of the people like he doesn't want right. to turn things back over to britain right right like they want him I mean, to. he wants the he wants the arabs to take control of their stuff and then they area. kind of don't want that at the end well it doesn't really work out yeah well Okay, so here's the other thing that you have to realize if you're watching Lawrence of Arabia, is this is based on an actual person and based on some actual events, although things have been modified to fit the story. Names have been changed, characters have been changed, new characters have been added, uh, historical figures have been dropped. Um, The thing about, you know, just turning control of... uh, Damascus back over to the British within a couple of days is not quite right. I think it was like two or three years before full control was. And again, it's not turning it over because you are our conquerors, but it's because they didn't want to deal with the bureaucracy Right, uh, is what's going on there. So, you know, there are there's a lot of controversy around this film from Lawrence historians. Um, When this movie was first released. The T.E. Lawrence historians were just like, or the biographers were just like, this is not right. This is misleading. This part isn't right. This is incorrect. This movie is terrible. Um, Now there are um, elements in the movie that current day biographers look at and say, yes, that is very close to what really happened. Hmm. And this movie is based on uh, newspaper reports, Lawrence's own journal, Mm -hmm. and then... I forget the third aspect, just probably historical record, um, is where they cobbled this together. Written, I'm sorry, directed by David Lean, one of the great directors. Um, This movie fits into the epic category, the epic genre of movie. And we talked about that a few weeks ago when we were doing Mad, 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 Mad World. Mm -hmm. Um, In the fact that we're in that time period where we're trying to compete with television, we want to do something that is not your square screen, not your widescreen but something that's filmed in, I think it was Panavision 65 or Pana 65 or Pana 70. Yeah. I forget uh, exactly which, Zach, you probably know this. I know uh, I was reading about the restoration to get to the Blu-ray, and they were doing the restoration off of an 8K print. Yeah, yeah. A film, so... So it's a pretty big... That's but, rather large. That's like double what we would... I mean, if you're going to shoot a movie, I think film's 2K, right? Film is 2K, you've got like, 4K Ultra HD, e. which will be coming out. Right, and so, and this, so is this is even bigger a, than that. A very large film. And so even when we are watching this today, we're still getting a little bit of this scene being cut off. A little bit of yeah. these shots being cut yeah. off. Yeah, uh, Actually, a little bit more than a little bit in my TV. I actually had to go in and change my uh, thing on my television when I was playing it back. To oh, yeah, to set it to widescreen. I had to set it to like super giant glow in the dark white screen. <laughs> I actually, you know, I, I basically projected it on the wall. No, that's not true. But I did, I did have to adjust to the widescreen to see edges. And even then, there was, you know, some choppy, choppy. I think. What What was the Panavision aspect ratio? Uh, that's what like I was looking for. Um, was it like twenty two by nine or something? It was something ridiculous. That sounds. It really was right. here. It is um, two point two to one. 
Oh, my word. So you're looking at a movie that is almost two and a half times wide as it is tall. Right. Um, known as, um, well, in this case, the Pana, Panavision one. Right. Um, and I'm trying to find the exact one here, but I'm pretty sure it's 2.2 to 1. Yeah. Just hugely, hugely weird. But I will say this, and one of the most fascinating parts of this film is seeing the life of Obi-Wan in between when he <laughs> left the Jedi Order and, of course, his his battles there on Tatooine you know, they, before Luke Skywalker arrived. And interestingly, if you want to tie this back into Star Wars, uh, some of these locations were mm-hmm. actually used later in Star Wars and... Um, yeah. Uh, Lawrence the, of Arabia actually shot in on Tatooine. <laughs> <laughs> and it was also... Um, it, was, um, it was cheaper then. Oh, I forget George, what it was George in the Morocco. first Phantom Menace movie. They used some locations Jordan. that were in Lawrence of Arabia. In Jordan. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jordan. I was thinking for some reason Tunisia, but I may be thinking... Of well, a lot of Star, Star Wars, Wars was, was shot in Tunisia. Lawrence of Arabia was mostly shot in Jordan and in Spain. Spain. In fact, the whole... Um, Attack on Aqaba is mm-hmm. uh, was shot in a dried up riverbed in right. Spain, mm-hmm. um, but most of the rest was all shot in Jordan. The Jordanian government and the king were really helpful in finding all the locations. The only times that they got into a little bit of trouble was when they found out that, and this is from a scene that is not in the restored version, but I guess was in the original two hundred and twenty two minute release. Um, they were reading from the Quran and they got a little freaked out because they were like, "There shouldn't be a Westerner who's reading." the Quran and we have to make sure that there's an interpreter on set during those scenes to make sure that everything is said exactly correctly. So as not to offend. He didn't know any Arabic or anything. Right. Right. They wanted to make sure. But Lawrence did. Peter O'Toole did. Right. Yeah. And that's the other thing that that's, that's the other thing that's not really spelled out in the movie is that uh, Lawrence was very fluent in a number of different uh, languages. Uh, He had actually been in uh, Jordan, Syria as a, covert spy as world war one was gearing up. So he knew the layout of the land, which if they would have included that in the movie, people would have had a better understanding of why they took this cartographer mm-hmm. and shipped mm-hmm. him to the middle East because or shipped him out into the desert because here he is in Cairo, just making maps and spouting his silly nonsense and lighting matches onto his skin. And then they're like, Lawrence, we want you to go to the middle of nowhere right. and meet up with this uh, tribe and, and get a, uh, and get a, uh, a read on uh, King Fasil or a Fasil, Fasul, which is played, Fasil. which is played by um, Obi Wan Kenobi, um, Alec Guinness, Alec Guinness, which is in itself uh, a little weird to see Alec Guinness in in uh, brownface to an extent. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I would say there's three major Arabic characters that yes. you meet. One of them is actually played by an Arab. One of them is played by a British man. One of them is played, I believe, by a Mexican. Yes. Anthony Quinn? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps Mexican-American. I don't remember exactly what his... Uh... I, I, I don't remember if he was... I, I know that he is of Mexican descent. I don't mm-hmm. know if he is literally born in Mexico. But everyone else, they're Mexican. fine grabbing some, some Arab actors. And some of the faces are familiar if, yeah. you, uh, if you pay close attention. Your Omar um, Sharif is in there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, everyone else, you're right. Nobody of Arabic uh, origin in this movie. One thing I will say that I think is really cool, and if we could go back in time, Peter O'Toole, in like the very first shot you see him in the desert where he's got his 
his skin is just starting to turn tan mm-hmm. and his hair is brilliant gold and his eyes are like you know sea blue. blue i mean super yeah. blue man yeah. you look at that and that's doc savage that's like the oh, that is the lester dent version of doc savage as he originally and, appeared in the pulps and i'm like holy crap he would have been a perfect doc savage and i think that you know at taking out the the parts that made him really qualified kind of helped the the this character is, arc that they wanted to tell, which is this, yeah. this unassuming young man who goes into this strange world and blossoms into something entirely different. Maybe even goes, you know, goes native. It's 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 up for debate, even in the well, way. Well, no, I think in the way that the it. film and, and Zach, what do we, you know, fill us in here? Do you think that uh, Lawrence went native in uh, in his time with with the tribes? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely extent of him, like, it seemed like he almost wanted to become an Arab at times. I mean, he's just, you can tell he's obviously fascinated. He's very, he's very, in, I think, sympathetic and wants to see them thrive. Yeah. And is certainly willing to do a whole lot to make them a strong people. Well, I mean, you just see the moment where they bestow upon him their garb. Right. And right. he just wants to ride out and see how it flutters in the in the uh, wind. <laughs> and then he gets around the bend where they can't see him. And he's just tickled pink mm-hmm. yeah. over the fact that, look at me, I am. <laughs> what's the silent film? Uh, uh, D.W. Griffith. No, no, no. But uh, I mean the uh, Valentino. You know, you can oh. tell he's almost like, I am Valentino in this silent film. Hello, madam. And he's bowing. And he's doing all these great things. And he's just having a fun time playing. Mm-hmm. And right. then he starts to really get entrenched into the culture. He gets into that role a little too much. Yeah, well, well, not just into the culture, but yeah, as as like this, he becomes like, he, he feels that he's like this unstoppable mm-hmm. Superman. Right. Mm-hmm. Well. And he and it gets yes. to that part where we're going to is not only does he go in wanting to help these people, he ends up becoming the the very thing that I think he doesn't want to become. Mm-hmm. He ends up becoming, quote unquote, the great white hope. Right. I mean, he right. basically mm-hmm. says to the British generals, I won't have to pay them to fight. They will come for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And basically saying that I am their God. They do what I, I want them to do or what I will them to do. And then he rides out, and in that second half of the movie, he cannot find people to support his cause, and he has to pay off, you know, murderers and thieves to come and fight with his guerrilla bandits. And as as the uh, winter campaign goes on, they start to abandon him um, to the point where it's just he and a handful of other um, um, guerrillas uh, fighting in the desert, and Lawrence gets captured. He gets beaten. Uh, he's probably raped is the innuendo in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah, it's very, it's very clearly implied. And I, I think that's actually historical. They talked about that. I was reading right. some history stuff. So yeah, there's also some implications, um, that Lawrence was a sadomasochist, uh, right. and, a, and homosexual. Mm-hmm. So that while he did get beaten and flogged and raped, he actually enjoyed it. Uh, every every part of that, you know, that's the implication mm-hmm. that comes out in parts in the movie, as well as right. some historical uh, commentary. I, I'm not saying well, yeah, that's in biographies, but you know, the actually, fact that he's that you know, he's, part is in one of the biographies, uh, like uh, just a few years before the film, 
someone had posited in in one of the biographies, you know, what we basically the the sadomasochism and the possible homosexuality. So mm-hmm. that is something that they didn't necessarily make out a whole cloth. Someone else had said this is what we think is true or this this is what we believe and of course it was the 1950s so you say well, it out loud certainly, that makes it possibly true. They certainly toned it down in this movie. I mean you see him, you know, putting the matches out on his skin and people are like oh, oh you're crazy and he's like oh no it's it's not that big a deal once you get used to it. Um but then when you get to the flogging scene <laughs> I'm so sunburned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and there's, you know, I, to a point I want to say that Lawrence also turns to the dark side to an extent to where he becomes not only mad with influence and power over these people, mm-hmm. but he gets sort of out of control and mad with the ability to just kill mm-hmm. viciously mm-hmm. and without remorse. Um, you know, he makes the decision to kill this person that he saved uh, in order to keep the tribes together. And then later he, you know, unfortunately, one of these boy companions that he's taken under his his wing um, dies in quicksand. But then when it comes time to kill this uh, Turkish army who's uh, raped and, and pillaged a village, it's all out. Just leave no one yeah, alive. No kill him, well, him, whatever. I, I would say that definitely the, the killing aspect of it, he's always very reluctant. Not towards the end. I don't think at the end he was. No, that's he's just like, there is a, there's that Turkish soldier that's wanting to give up and Lawrence just kills him. Well, that's because, well, yes, that's because they were already in the thick of the fighting. That one guy charges off by himself and, and Lawrence and Lawrence just sits there and right. he's like, what, what about, huh, 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 and then when he finally dies, then he spurs right. everybody right. on. Right. I think like, right. and what's really, I think what's really realistic, even if it didn't actually happen, mm-hmm. what I think is really realistic about this movie is how many times Lawrence just totally gives up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like he's like, yeah. Oh, I had to kill my friend. I'm done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going back to Britain. I'm going to be a baker. Well, and, and sadly he is a character that doesn't, once he gets embedded, once he gets uh, captured by the Turks and then is released and he and he says I'm I'm done with this. Um he goes back and he finds out he's a person who cannot be in either world. Right. He realizes that he's not of the Arabic tribes. He realizes that he can't be a British citizen anymore because when he shows up in his uniform and he tries talking to people, they're just like, "Man, this guy's laying it on a bit thick, don't you think?" Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy is not not one of us anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. And I th- and I think that's in- I think that's very interesting. And 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 the cool thing about that is that the movie plays that out from the beginning. Like even before he goes out and you know becomes this pseudo Arab, he already doesn't fit in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, right. like the very first interaction that he has with a superior, like the superior thinks that he's making fun of the salute, right. and he's like, "No, I'm sorry, sir. That's just my manner." Mm-hmm. Um, again, also a big implication that he's. Um, a homosexual, which never actually is straight up addressed in the movie. No, no, no. no but no, no, there's no. lots of, you know, allusions to it, certainly. Well, and I think that that may be two things. Part of that, I think, is this was an actual historical personage, but I think it's also the fact that this was 1962. And I think in 1962, that veiled illusion nudge nudge wink wink i think that was that was pretty much the way people dealt with alternative sexualities 
And I, yeah. I think that as, that as opposed to today, where there wouldn't even be an al- illusion in the uh, right. in the movie. Mm-hmm. Exactly, right, right. they just strip it out entirely. Yep. But I, I think that it was, it was, it was one of those things where definitely the filmmakers wanted to make sure that this was something that got in there because it is very strongly implied in several places. But I think it's also one of those things where. Were they under the Hayes office in 62, or would they have been an MPAA? No, I forget when MPAA started, but they certainly wouldn't have been under the Hayes office. Well, for this film, whatever came after the Hayes office, the the Lawrence office. Uh, The question that I have for you, Zach, uh is um, uh, the Johnston era would have been all the way to 63. Okay. So Uh, so that would have been uh, the MPPDA. (laughs) <laughs> but not the MPAA. AA, right, yes. which was like 69. Right. Yeah, six, 66. Um, the question that I have for you, Zach, is please draw a parallel between what you see in the, and I'll, and I'll just say this, and I know people, and I don't mean it to to be as bad as it sounds, but the gimmicky, you know, Super Panavision. Right of this movie and something of today's technologies. Right. <clears throat> well, that parallel um, would definitely be 3D happening at the moment. Why do you say that? Well, it's a form of viewing a movie that is almost solely p- possible inside of a movie theater. I mean, technology today sure. is advancing where we can watch 3D at home, but right, no, we but can't. I'm, I mean, we can't watch uh, Super Pana Vision. Well, we Vision. can. I mean, you know, the home, the home theaters. Then, I mean, with my home theater, you guys have have sat down yeah. and watched it. That's a pretty big screen, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's what that's seventy, eighty inches, something like that. But I mean, we're talking about normal circumstances there, right? Right. right. So yes, that, you can't it, get the, you can't no, get the you big can't get the you can't get get the big Panavision experience in the theater. So it's essentially to a up. A, an artistic ploy to get people to come and watch the movie in the theater. Right. More people are concerned about television today. Right. People are concerned with the internet and television and DVRs and all these things, uh, the internet. And so to put in 3D is kind of that answer of let's let's bring them back Wait, into the, the theater and the internet. Yeah, don't forget the internet. Although you can't get 3D on the internet if you've got the uh, glasses and the YouTube channel. Yeah. So. And if you're willing to have a tremendous headache for the rest of your natural life. So, you know, this ultra widescreen format mm-hmm. kind of faded away because of the size of theaters, right. technology. Um, I'm sure the film was quite expensive. I'm sure it was back then. Yeah. Do you think the same thing will happen now to 3D? Or has it become so embedded... That, you know, 3D televisions and everything that we have at the home are going to help perpetuate the process of theater to home release. Let's keep pumping it out. following 3D has been kind of interesting because when Avatar came out, it was kind of accepted that this is going to be around for a couple years. This is going to be a thing people are going to go to to try to make Avatar money. Mm -hmm. But I think it's lasted longer... Than people thought. Certainly longer than I thought. And really, yep. and 
it's not just like weird side movies doing it. It's like Avengers. It's the biggest oh, yeah, money making movies. Uh, yeah. The biggest money making movies of the year will generally go. We'll have a 3D theater showing. Because the thing they, is, though, we are in it right right now. Right. It's sure. some, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. another year goes by, and you're like, oh, I can't believe that this thing is in there is still there. But when you think about it, you know, if it's been around for five, six years. You know how long how long were people creating stuff in Panavision? Yeah, from about right, fifty five through about sixty five. Right. I mean, I mean and, the original three D run and, was like yeah. five six years, mm-hmm. and nobody does stuff that's that wide anymore. Right. No. Although IMAX is pretty close. IMAX yeah, pretty but that has its own unique infrastructure. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the the reason why they go with the big blockbusters as their primary three D is because they already know audiences are going to flock to that. And then on yeah. top of that, you're doubling the ticket price yeah. totally, totally. for these glasses that have feces on them, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. Right. Okay, everything has feces. I know. Goodness. If you go through the That's universe, why I can't, I can't sit in this matter. fancy furniture that I bought for Zach and Rodrigo to sit in because we craft it you know, every week. Fecal matter. If, if you worked <laughs> where I worked, you would never worry about these things again. Trust me. Just, uh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I have, a, uh, a, uh, I have two kids. Uh, one of them is just now going through potty training, and I've been changing his... Stinky ass diapers for two years. So mm-hmm. yes, I know all about. I was a CNA at a long term care for two and a half years. There so you go. So I'm you all, know. I was all up in the poop. <laughs> it was all I, deep in the poop. I interview people at feedlots. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so we're the gonna, next. Are we playing one upsmanship? The next question, no. then Zach. They keep me across the hall from the dead people. The next question that I have, I'm posing to you. Yeah, dead people, not dead poop. Yeah. I deal, I deal with animal carcasses. <laughs> Steven is posing Zach a question. Yeah, now this is a, a question that's redirected back at you that you had asked Matthew in a recording session that we did for Top 5, which is another one of our podcasts, which won't come out till next week. Right. Okay? So in, in next week, if people are listening to this in release order, they're going to go, wait a minute, Zach isn't smart in asking Matthew this question. <laughs> he actually is. <laughs> yeah. Just he wait a while. First. They're all impressed, and then I depress them. Yeah. So yeah. let me... Oh, yes, right. then you depress them. It is wonderful. Uh, but let me ask you this. In this story, we know that uh, Lawrence's history has been changed right. from what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And they make no qualms about it. Right. Would you rather have a movie that is historically (laughs) accurate or one that takes licenses and liberties with characters and situations to make it a more interesting story? Oh. I'm going to I'm going to have to say historically accurate. And this is why, because jobs came out. Two weeks ago. Yeah, and it's not accurate. Exactly. And so I was kind of interested in it. I was like, I would like to see a movie about Steve Jobs. And then I read Steve Wozniak and a couple of people from Apple were like, well, it's not really that accurate. So I was like, well, I really don't want to see it then. And so... But do you think uh, less now of Lawrence of Arabia knowing and doing the research that you've done afterwards that there are inconsistencies in the story, inaccuracies in the story, um... Uh, Peter O'Toole is like six three, and Lawrence was yeah. like five eleven. There's like six right, inches right, difference. Right, right. Four or something. Yeah, there's like six or seven inches between their height and their build and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that lessen the movie for you to know that the movie that you're watching is based on actual events? Yeah, names, places, and sequence have been altered for storytelling purposes. I th- in the case of Lawrence of Arabia, I don't think it does. 
And maybe it shouldn't in Jobs either. Maybe just because I respect Steve Jobs and I had an idea of who Steve Jobs was and so I want to watch me about him. But I think you have to, in my mind, to adapt anything to film into movie or to really any medium, things are going to have to be changed and altered and things are going to have to be cut out and things will have to be skewed a little bit because you're trying to make something entertaining. And I think, I mean, they already showed like... 45 minutes of just camels walking across a desert. I mean, I'm sure there was about 18 more days of camel footage they could have shown to make this historically accurate, but you gotta right. edit gotta edit some stuff out. You gotta change the story. Uh, still, though, I mean, there's a difference between, yes, it took them seven days to get <laughs> yeah, across yeah. a desert, and, oh, let's make... Let's completely erase this character. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Or really, this person, and not make them a character. Right. Do you have some thoughts on this, Rodrigo? Yeah. Um, my thought is I will take an entertaining movie. As will I. Because I'm going to go see a movie. Um, the The fact that um, it's historically accurate or historically inaccurate is only a little bit of a hook. The only issue that I have with historical inaccuracy is if it kind of um is like complicit to like uh, like oppressive ideas oh sure 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 like if it's like if 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 what really happened was the british sent this guy who just kind of facilitated things and it was actually like this awesome arab general that did all of this and then Mm -hmm. in the movie they switch it to lawrence being the one who does it Uh, right well that would be terrible but other than that i would much rather see a movie about this weird, interesting, like, effeminate, crazy guy <laughs> and his adventures in the desert um, than something where, you know, there's even more time spent negotiating with Arabic tribes and more time spent with translators and more time spent doing all of that other stuff. So there's... Well, there's- Go ahead, Matthew. There, on the, the subject of uh, historical accuracy, there is one thing that problem, I guess, that comes up for me. Have you guys, you guys have seen Titanic, right? Yes. Sure. Yeah. With, you know, the boat sinks. Yeah, and I had at to the see end, it multiple you know, times. You know that corrupt guy who's running around with a, a, a revolver and eventually realizes what he's done and shoots himself in the head? To the Phantom? Because he's been a bastard. No, no, no. No, he, it's he, one he of decided the, to try to get away. No, no, one of the guys on the boat. One of like the uh, stewards of the vulgar boat. It, the it was the... Uh, uh, Kate's lover. I original see. lover. No, I thought that was the Phantom. That was the Billy Phantom. Zane. No, Billy no. Zane didn't die. He survived. Okay, stop. Didn't he? Yes. This, no, he yeah. did. Yes, he, he did because he... Tra- yeah. He shot himself Wait, who shot himself after, in the face? Oh! During the film. Okay, the guy who was like... Yes. The prologue. That man is a real historical personage. He is widely known to be one of the heroes of Titanic. He did not do the things that the movie posited him doing Mm -hmm. with his name and likeness. He did not kill himself out of despair for the horrible things he had done. And he still has living relatives somewhere in Wales who are like, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, that was my great grandfather. That was totally wait. What are you guys doing? That to me in historical stuff is problematic. It's one thing yeah. to say, well, 
these are things that T.E. Lawrence did or maybe did or might have done or things that he might have been inclined to do. But it's another thing to say, well, for our story's purposes, we needed a villain. So we're going to use this real personage mm-hmm. in that role. You know, one of the other things that's a uh, historically inaccurate is the Sykes-Pico, I think is the pronunciation, the agreement about what was going to happen mm-hmm. after they took over the territory. Lawrence actually knew that way, way, mm-hmm. way earlier in the sequence of events and still went out and fought alongside the Arabs than what's portrayed in the movie where he only finds out about it really late in the story. Hmm. I, so, Matthew, you have a problem with the historical inaccuracies of changing the intent of a, of a historical exactly. figure. This um, is my thing. Is a lot but of you, don't, you don't have a problem that, that Rose and um, what's-his-face? Jack. Didn't Jack exist. got it on inside of a Model A Ford instead of a... Well, it should Bentley. be noted that the only car aboard Titanic was actually in pieces in the hold. But more importantly... Yeah, Jack and Rose sex are, scene. Yeah, that's are because afterwards when they find it, it was in pieces. <laughs> Shut up. Jack and Rose are the not real people. Jack and Rose are made-up characters. And there's, there's a concept that you'll see in a lot of these biopics or these historical fictures of the composite character. Mm-hmm. Someone who didn't exist, but someone who takes on the role, or you know, in some cases, the role of multiple characters. And I'm I'm really oddly sort of fine with that because, like Rodrigo said, it's about a good movie. In most cases, if I really want to know about this man's history, I will in fact go to a textbook. Or to be honest, it's 2013. I'll probably go to the wiki. But when you come down to it, if you're telling me a story, that story can't necessarily be the actual reality of someone's life because. I don't know about you guys, but my life kind of ebbs and flows, and I'll have days and days and days where I'm just completely and utterly boring, and then you know we'll have a show, and I'm like super awesome for an hour and a half, and people think, hey, he must be fun to be around. No, I'm a jack wagon. And I think that that, that for me is kind of the description of the bio movies or the historical movies with a real historical presence. If you have to create a role for someone, I feel like you should create the character as well, if that makes sense. Okay. To where you're, you know, you're actually using, you're using bits of a person's life. They've obviously changed the order of events. They've changed some of the expectation. They've definitely changed, um, at least our perception of what, you know, Thomas Lawrence was like before any of this happened. So I would say, yeah, I'd rather see them take liberties that are obviously taken liberties, if that makes sense. All right, it does. I'd like to give a little shout-out here to some people that back the Major Spoilers cause. I'll give you a little shout-out real quick. Tyler Gibson, Jesse Ayers, Matthew Goyne, Zachary Radke, Kent Daw, Daring Heisenberg, (laughs) Ian Hamilton, uh, Nara Van Rosam. Casey Box, Nicole Gross, and Matt Verlinden. Thank you so much for backing the Major Spoilers cause and keeping all that we do up and running. And we do what we do. And if you would like to Try get to your name, uh, if you'd like to have your name read or if you'd like to be included in some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, head over to members.majorspoilers.com, our secret cabal of spoiler rights. Hang out over there. 
and get access oh, to some other no. stuff. You can find oh. out more. Members.majorspoilers.com. List of movies that were shot using Super Panavision 70. Mm-hmm. Okay? This 20, or I'm sorry, 2.2 to 1 aspect ratio. The Big Fisherman from Disney in 59. Exodus in 1960. West Side Story in 61. Lawrence of Arabia in 62. The Great Escape in 63. My Fair Lady in 64. Cheyenne Autumn, which I'm not familiar with, in 64. Lord Jim in 65. The Heroes of Telemark in 65. Grand Prix, presented in 70mm Cinerama in 66. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Ice Station Zebra. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in 68. Wow. I'm surprised at how many of these I've seen. McKenna's Gold. uh, Krakatoa, East of Java. Selected Scenes in Tadeo, presented in 70mm Cinerama. Song of Norway in 1970, advertised as on the Cinerama screen. Ryan's Daughter in 70, Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 77, special effect shots only. Tron in 82, live action scenes and partial CGI scenes only. Brainstorm in 83, virtual reality scenes only. And Auto Emotion in 84, a BMW promotional short subject. I love that they, they put in some of those, they put in... Presented in Cinerama. 70. Yeah, Cinerama. Just like the, every movie is like something, 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 Piranha 3D. 21 movies. 21 <laughs> movies shot using this process. Right. Cheyenne Autumn is John Ford's last flick. It has uh, Richard Widmark and Ricardo Montalban and Edward G. Robinson. She. Oh, okay. I mean, we're yeah. looking, we're seeing Panavision stuff into the 80s oh sure sure mm-hmm. yeah. yeah but i mean you well, see that there as, starts to be a huge drastic drop oh, yeah. in the as, gap as between kind of a, you see it in the 80s as one of those moments of hey wouldn't it be interesting to play with these old tools right yeah you know, which, which a, really is what 3d is well look at this oh, no, look totally. at this look at this run 59 60 61 62 63 64 64 65 65 66 68 68 68 which seems to be the high point 69, 69, 70, 70, 77, 82, 83, 84. Wow. So really by 69, that was the end. So that was a decade of of movies. And most of those last ones were just select shots. Right, right, right. right. And you got to imagine, to a large degree, this is not just, hey, let's keep shooting in Panavision. Uh, At least, like, this is what I hope, because I hope this is what's happening with 3D. (laughs) Um it's British. it's also we've already invested all this money in this equipment. The theaters have right. switched over right. to be able to do it, so we can't not do it anymore. And the point where the technology f- is finally paid for and you can justify not doing it anymore, that's when things start mm-hmm. to decline. So let me point out something that happened right in the middle of all this that probably is a good indicator of why Panavision, why we didn't see 50, 100, 200 movies shot in Panavision over this time period. In 1963, AMC Theater opened a two-screen Parkway Twin, opened the two-screen Parkway Twin in Kansas City, a concept which company president Stan uh, Durwood later claimed to have come up with in 1962. This was the start of the multiplex. Oh. So if you're looking at how can we get more people to see more of these movies now that we're done with the studio system, or the studio system basically on the outs by this point. Smaller and we can start screens. smaller Whoa. screens or we're, we're fixed in a fixed real estate. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. we have to f- try to figure out how to make more screens. We make the screen smaller. We can fit people into this space. We sell multiple movies at the same time. We make our money. I remember in Ottawa growing up, uh, we had a nice theater. Uh, it was a one big screen. And I went, I mean, Salt Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, this, this is one of those theaters that have three sections to it. You know, you have... 
uh, a large center aisle and then two 10 to 15 seat side aisles. Mm-hmm. Um, really big. And saw Muppet movie. I mean, just saw all the movies growing up there. And then they decided to split the movie theater in two to have two screens. And this would have happened in the late 80s, early 90s. And it was just not the same going experience. Mm-hmm. But the theater was making twice the money mm-hmm. because right. they now could s- sell two movies. So knowing this fact about the start of the multiplex happening right around the same time as Panavision was going in, I could see the multiplex killing Cinerama yeah. and Panavision right. movies uh, from that from that standpoint. Which is interesting compared to now with 3D when cinemas are paying lots of money to update so they can show 3D movies. Right. Because, because it's, also because, the price increase. Yeah, because the this time, um, unlike back then, the money-making strategies for both parties are in sync. Right. Back then, right. it was like, oh, let's make it more spectacular, say the studios. Oh, let's make it smaller and cheaper, say the... Uh, the right. theaters. Yeah. The this theater. time, the studios came to the theaters and were like, "Hey, we're doing this 3D thing. You want to buy into it?" And the theaters were like, "Yeah, nobody's coming to see movies anymore." <laughs> right. So yeah. that's why that's why everybody's kind of on the same mm-hmm. page about it. The other thing, and and this goes back to the discussion about um, why things may have changed a little bit in the um, historical accuracy of the movie, is that if you think about it. The Lawrence of Arabia story follows the hero with a thousand faces, the hero's journey, Mm -hmm. almost exactly. Here's the refusal of the call. Here we go and have the fight in the desert and the fleeing and, and, you know, the returning with the boon of more knowledge of what's gained. I mean, magical journey, magical journey. The magical flight is in there uh, in a couple of places. Um, But I find that interesting that and I guess you could read any story into this because that's what well, uh, that's what not uh, necessarily. Well, I that's mean, what Campbell was trying to say is that there are so many stories that unintentionally right, right, tie right. right into this theory of the same story narrative. Mm-hmm. You could probably right. apply it to a lot, but as I was watching Lawrence of Arabia, and again, this was a couple of weeks ago, um, yep. I was struck by, oh wait a minute, here's the part in the story where the hero does this. Here's the part yep. of the story where the hero does this, and so for a large extent of that movie, it follows. Hero's Journey very well. Are you familiar with Hero's Journey? Yeah. Okay. You did a nice long lecture on it. Yep. In college. <laughs> yep. <laughs> not not a thorough lecture. A long <laughs> lecture. Well, actually, no, no, no. It's it all about Star Wars. Wars. Because it's I'm, all I'm sure. about Star Wars. It's all about Star Wars, Wars mm. so I love it. I take Luke Skywalker and we take him through the Hero's Journey. Yep. Pew, pew. Is he no, has a Luke lecture. Skywalker action. Here's, a, here's the thing that I find really interesting, and I kind of hinted about it um, earlier, but Lawrence of Arabia is kind of like this if not the first, then kind of this like basic example of the um, that story in which a guy from a different culture comes in, becomes the greatest warrior of that culture, and then helps them to surmount their you know problems, right? Yeah. Right. Um, but then ultimately becomes their enemy. Uh, I don't think he did here. I think that there are a lot of people lost faith in him. And that's fine. This yeah. this movie kind of has a downer ending because it's kind of realistic. But what mm-hmm. I'm saying is, is that basic idea that we see in The Last Samurai, that we see in 
um, Avatar that we see in all of these movies. Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves, certainly. Um, Originates here. Mm -hmm. And if if it doesn't originate here... German then yeah. then it definitely gets codified as viable movie material mm-hmm. and we have like I, I always make the the joke that i've seen dances with wolves a thousand times because i've right, seen it right. as a thousand different movies right. Right. right but really most of them with kevin costner yeah <laughs> but really what i should have been saying is i've seen lawrence of arabia a thousand times because that obviously predates mm-hmm. dances with wolves i i would say don't let the length of this movie deter you mm-hmm. from watching it if it you're listening fight. at home when because when you see 222 minutes you're like holy crap this is a four or five We're ten hour movie math divide by 60 yeah, yeah it's three hours yeah three and a half hours i mean it's a long movie but even the shots of these big long you know five minute ten minute sequences mm-hmm. of them walking across the desert have a real point to the story mm-hmm. right yeah. you have to show how burning hot they are, how right. they have no water, yeah, how right. people are... How if they, difficult everything is. Yeah, so that when Lawrence gets to the edge of the desert and he turns around and says, where's uh, Gimshi or whatever the guy's name is? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, he's he fell back behind a long ways. You can't go back for him. Oh, I'm going back for him. Watch me. Watch me do this. That has a whole point. While you right. just watch them struggle through the desert for 15 minutes, right? then he goes and rescues the friend... This person that he cares for brings him back. Everybody cheers him, and then he has to end up killing this guy, shooting him in the face. And then that becomes the tragedy. Here I almost died myself trying to save this person, and then ultimately I have to kill him. So these really long sequences, and there's some great battle sequences too, like the blowing up of the train is just awesome to see in this this aspect ratio. But they all have a point to further the story. And I don't, and I believe that David Lean would have cut out things that he thought were unnecessary if he felt it was making the film too long. Too long. Yeah. I, I agree. It was so, yeah, I was terrified to watch this movie. I planned to watch it multiple sessions, which I ended up doing. But it's not a movie that's just long, really, for... It's, I don't think it's like right. a movie that's long for long's sake. It's not trying right. to hit a huge It's time not the limit. problem that we were talking right. about, not. and also in another... And, I, and listeners, if you're a fan of, of this of this podcast, you really should listen to uh, Top 5 number, I want to say, 51, 52, where we all discuss our Top 5... Things in movies that we yeah, want to see go away. Yeah, film techniques that we want to see go away. And and I'm not going to say whose it is, but the long movie, just for long movie sakes, right. as, as Zach's referring to, mm-hmm. is one of those things that's gotten out of control. It, Lawrence of Arabia is the longest movie I've ever watched, but it doesn't feel like the longest movie I've ever watched. It's certainly more attention-grabbing and forward-moving yeah. Then um, some movies that I've watched that are even two oh, and a half hours long or two wait, two hours long. Wait until you get to the twelve hour birth of a nation that we'll be watching. <laughs> Good lord. Yeah, I'm sick that day. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever day it is. So yes, uh, <laughs> I have a previous engagement that I need to make as soon as possible. It's interesting the uh, the directors who have gone on record to say that this uh, movie has influenced them, that the visual style has influenced them. George Lucas mm-hmm. watched Star Wars clearly. Mm-hmm. clearly. Sam Peckinpah, uh, Martin Scorsese, Ridley Scott. Oh, Scorsese, you can totally see it. Steven Spielberg, all been influenced by this. uh, And I forget which one called the film a miracle. Um, But it's influenced by these directors. And interestingly, they would have been 
gosh, somebody look up real quick. Matthew, do your do your internet magics. Tell me how old Steven Spielberg was in sixty two. Internet magic. How old is Steven Spielberg? Uh, Scorsese would have been 20. Steven Spielberg is 66 years old. He was born in 1946, so in 60-what? Two. He would have been 16 years old. So we did another show back before this was Zach on film mm-hmm. where we discussed... That was my internet magic, by the way. Did you like that? Where we discussed... <laughs> good work, Siri. Yeah, good work, Siri. I don't have a Siri. How dare you? Where we discuss this magical age where things coalesce Mm -hmm. with you. And so it's interesting that we're seeing between the ages of 16 and 20, suddenly this movie comes out. Yeah. And these guys are like, oh, this is it. And that could have been one of these driving factors to put them where they're Mm -hmm. at. So, Zach, another question for you. Yeah. What visual style or technique in this in this film has inspired you going forward oh that's a good question i really like uh the ab- ask you every week <laughs> i know it's just sometimes well this week i phrased forget. it a little differently yeah i liked he, he the shots of pushing in to a face that ended up being like super like tight tight, tight up in the frame. Oh yeah, and can you imagine seeing that in that ultra wide screen? I mean, that's why I see you just see. one of Peter O'Toole's <laughs> glorious, glorious blue eyes. eyes. Yes. I mean, it's the size of an ocean. This man <laughs> is good looking in this movie. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, he's he a beautiful is, man. He is, he is really beautiful. Yeah. And you know to be honest, this is his really first major acting gig. He played like Trooper 1 and Trooper 2 and a couple other movies and had a TV series. Mm-hmm. But as far as his big, big movie breakout role, this is it. Well, and the, like the, the crazy thing about it is that um, like this character is so specific and so particular. It's like it's very feminine, very frail. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and also crazy. Yeah. And it's like it's crazy to start out your career as that character. And it's amazing that he was ever able to break away from that and he did i mean you see you know his career and he plays always very you know insanely british characters (laughs) but can you imagine this film with uh albert finney or anthony perkins or marlon brando marlon brando (laughs) was maybe not but you know maybe maybe he could pull it off alec alec guinness had already played lawrence already in a play Uh so he was a contender too they're like no alec you look kind of Arabic, I think. <laughs> yeah. You have that sort of Welsh Araby thing going uh-huh. on. And that's um, totally a thing. Lawrence Olivier was originally going to play Prince uh, Faisal or Faisal. Prince I've, Ali. Faisal. Faisal. Yeah. As strong as regular men. <laughs> I don't know words. So, anyway, sorry. Back to your magnificent close ups of Peter O'Toole. Yeah, I really like. That's my band name, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, like Peter O'Toole and the Magnificent Close-Ups? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Magnificent Close-Ups of Peter O'Toole. Them and uh, Devil, Devil, Devil Elevator. Secretly a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> secretly the future. Yeah, secretly the future. All ghost yeah. all along, yeah. Ghost all along. Yeah. Again, you, you need to listen <laughs> to yes. five. Somebody We're referencing sorry. the future. 
Stop it. You're ruining the jokes before people get there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Trust that me. Out. It's more brilliant. In yeah, yeah. yeah no, totally. You is. know, be, just be like me. You'll forget by the time you hear the episode. Yeah, that's, that's true. All right. Anything else visually that wait, you're bringing wait, from? Visually. From... No. No. <laughs> that's it? I, that, I really like those shots. I really I'll, like the pushing. I'll, notice I'll, that. Types. Notice that. Notice how they shoot the sand, right? Notice how they shoot these desert scenes. They at one point will show the desert in glorious. I mean, it's the same, almost the same time of day when they're shooting a lot of this. The time of the day where you don't want to be shooting sand. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. But at some points, the desert is beautiful and golden, and the sky is this magnificent blue. And then when bad stuff is happening. That same sand looks brazen and harsh mm-hmm. and doesn't look warm and inviting. And the sky is kind of a muddy, muddy gray color. Mm-hmm. Even though it's still blue, you can mm-hmm. still tell that it's, you know, they're bringing you into the story in these wide vistas to really tell you what's going on in this environment and how it's affecting these people. If you look at the composition and how, and this is really something you need to work on, is creating depth mm-hmm. in your space. Because even though we're looking at a very wide scene, wider than what our eye would normally see just looking at stuff, in the foreground you have a little mountain, what are those, mesa, right? right You've got a little right. mesa in the foreground, and then way off in the midground you see the, the camels and the riders going across the desert. And then far in the background you see the dunes with the wind blowing across it. And so that depth helps you get drawn into the story as well. So look at how you really compose this shot. And Lean is a brilliant director. Uh, I forget who the cinematographer is on this. This is uh, uh, F.A. Young who did the cinematography on here. Just brilliant in how he's taking this harsh landscape and using it as a real character in this story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's wonderful, Zach. So go back and just, just compare the scene where um, he's going back to save the, the, um, the boy. The boy, mm-hmm. right? And then compare that to the scene where they're blowing up the train. Okay. Same same desert, different same style camp. of bringing the the world to life, and having that interact is well, very is really cool. Uh, one technique that I don't want to carry forward that I was very notice I noticed it much more than I have in previous films is day for night, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. all up in this film. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. it's like anything in the desert at night. Well, it's super just, day. Yeah, I mean, then what I thought about is like, well, that's I mean, that, the only way you can pull those night shots off is if huge generators you're lugging out into the desert, right? You don't right. Have or if you do it in a sound course. stage, sound stage, yeah. Yeah. I guess. Okay, day so for night was the thing that they did in the '60s, though, that nobody knew sucked yet. Yes, yeah, it sucked. Shot on location in Tunisia and Burbank. <laughs> <laughs> so check this out. So they did all this pre-production starting in I don't know when. Um, But the film began shooting on May 15th, 1961, Mm -hmm. wrapped shooting on October 20th of 1962. The movie hit theaters in December of 62. That's like an 18-month shooting schedule. They had an 18-month shooting schedule, and then they had less than two months to get this out into the theaters. Insane. I wonder That's if it's 250 minutes long. They didn't actually edit it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, they just taped the rushes together. There are some, together. and listeners, if you go over to Majorspoilers.com, our parent site, and you click on that Amazon link, you can go over and you can get Lawrence of Arabia and Blu-ray. Uh, that's the one that I would recommend. 
But there are also, Zach, some really good biographies on... Um, T. Lawrence. On David Lean. Oh, um, oh David Lean. Uh, the director. And mm-hmm. I'm, let me see if I can find the, the one that I'm looking for. There's David Lean, a biography, and there's another one with him just kind of looking out at the, at the reader from, things. yeah, leaning on things and looking at you. You know the one I'm talking about. It's <laughs> the David picture that, Lean. it's the picture that everybody knows of David Lean. This is my cousin, Jack Swagger. <laughs> but you should go and, and pick up a biography, uh, because it's, it's fascinating to, to read about and learn about how he approaches, um, film, because there is no way today that you would be able to take a movie as long as this and get it done in under two months. No. So There's he's no you could get it in the theater. He's directing, he's shooting, he's also making sure that it's being edited while he's still shooting. Mm-hmm. So I mean that sometimes happens but today. But most most of most of the time the conventional is for every week shooting, you get two and a half weeks of post production. So if you're shooting for ninety days, you basically have a little over hundred and eighty days, two hundred days to edit it. And then you get it released. So mm-hmm. if you look at, you know, the Avengers 2 wrapping up production next week or whatever it is, in 180 days plus promotional time, it'll be in the theaters. Not so with this movie, which I find fascinating. Yeah, that's insane. Fascinating. Uh, final question. Your girlfriend watched this movie with you? <laughs> no. Uh, she was in the room doing <laughs> homework she, when she I watched not, a she, chunk of it. Did she not see this movie and go, who is this beautiful man? No, she's just looking at me. Bam. Bam. No, you should say while she was saying it, she was like, likely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to tell you. Sir, so. I've seen Peter O'Toole as well as <laughs> of Arabia. And yeah, you, yeah. sir, are no, no I am Peter no O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. You're You've a tool. Kind of a, a Gavin <laughs> sort of thing going for you. Maybe like a, a Billy Corgan with hair thing, but you are no Peter O'Toole. Final thoughts about uh, Zach's uh, analysis and reflections on this movie? I think it did well. Um, I think that um, he uh, possibly this time it actually paid off that he saw it in chunks so that his uh, attention span could actually get everything in that he needed to had some good insight um and uh, managed to not stall for too long at your question so i think he passes (laughs) this time around what about you matthew i agree i i think the big the big expectation i have when it comes to this is what i like to call the tommy boaz factor which is does he sound like he's bluffing and it's clear that Zach actually watched the majority of the 397 minutes of Lawrence of Arabia. That right there is the basis. That's a C plus for me. That us getting through this material is a passing grade. I'm going to go with a high B. I'm going to go B plus for the whole thing. He's definitely got some insights. He had some thoughts that I never considered mm-hmm. about Lawrence of Arabia. And, you know, it's definitely. He needs to maybe prepare for that question that you ask him every <laughs> single week. But, you know, that's more of a side issue. The fact that I ask him the same question every week and he still doesn't You ask him, Zach, if I, I, I'm Stephen, Zach. Let me ask you something. What techniques <laughs> did you see in this film? Well, that's what he's supposed to be doing, right? <laughs> and that's yeah. the thing, exactly. You <laughs> ask him that every week for 97 weeks now. And every week he's kind of like, Oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking about candy bracelets. But Actually, again, they're candy B-pluses. necklaces. Let's get it right. Yeah, right yeah. Now. please. I'm please sorry. know my thoughts better. 
I'm old and out of touch. I'm I'm going to be 43 yes, soon. Yes, you know, you when are. you're 43, your life is over. I'll be 23 next year. Yeah, next I will year. Side thought. <laughs> side thought. All right, uh, Zach, get us out of here. I will come to your house and slap you. Uh, that'll be it for Zach on film this week. Make sure to head over to Majorspoilers.com and find the podcast posting page. That's three P words in a row. It's called alliteration. Mm-hmm. English is Deal fun. Uh, and click on the Amazon.com link while you're there and do your shopping of uh, Peter O'Toole posters and pinups and buy Lawrence of Arabia on <laughs> Blu-ray and remastered and pick on up some biographies and stuff. page, you get Peter's pinups. Yeah. Uh, so a little won't cost you any extra to buy all that goodies, but a little bit will come back to us to keep this, this ship afloat. Uh, that'll be it for this week. Next week... We are finding some apes on a planet in Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Next week on Zach on Film. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.